Well, if you haven't got the vibe already, this morning might be a little bit different. Um, but I believe God is in it. And I believe God is in it uh, because uh, if you don't like what happens this morning, you can actually blame Tendai. Um, she doesn't know this. She doesn't know this. I have been avoiding speaking from the pulpit for a very long time. I'm very comfortable speaking to crowds. Uh, I've spoken to ex in excess of 100,000 people at one time in the past. I have no issue with the fear of man. But speaking from the Lord's pulpit in the Lord's house to the Lord's people on the Lord's day hits really different. And I've been avoiding this for a long time. And CJ, who unfortunately had to run off, she prayed with me two weeks ago. Uh, I was wrestling with a few things and she prayed with me in the morning and she said, I really feel like you know, God, God wants you to step into something. And then Tendai stands up and says, there are people in this house who are not stepping up to the call of God in their life. And I said, thank you, Tendai. And then without me actually trying to do anything, by the end of that Sunday, by the time I went home at about 1 p.m., Pastor Larry had asked me if I'd speak here this morning. So that's, that's how this came about. So I believe God is in it. Uh, and I want to echo what Pastor Larry was just talking about there with the numbers in the, in the, the chicken house in the U.S. I had uh, a very clear witness from God some years ago. I was convoying from the Murray River down to Melbourne with my cousins in, the, in three different cars. And we were staged at one area, and I just had this overwhelming sense that I needed to go to my cousin Joel and tell him that he was going to get a flat tire. Drive carefully, you're going to get a flat tire. And I wrestled with it because it was dumb. What a silly thing to say to some, like, as if I'm just going to like throw a dart at a dartboard and happen to pick the time and he gets a flat tire, right? And I sat there and I wrestled with it for about 10 minutes and I didn't do it. About 45 minutes later, he got a flat tire. There he is, he's driving in front of a smoke, starts pouring off his rear left tire. He pulls over. Now, there was no crash, there was no disaster, there was no nothing. But what there was, was an abiding sense in my soul that there was an opportunity. He was not a Christian. And there was such an opportunity. And it was missed because I didn't say what God had for me to say. And I'm not going to make that mistake today. Okay? I'm going to say what God has to say today. There's a few formalities we need to get out of the way first. Uh, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge the traditional owner of the land. That is, of course, the living Lord God. On, on whose earth we stand and by whose grace we breathe. My pronouns are wretched sinner. And I identify as wholly dependent on the finished work of Christ on the cross. By grace, through faith alone, am I saved. And I have nothing to offer in and of myself. And so I sincerely pray that the Holy Spirit would be the one who speaks here today. May there be none of me. Who will you serve? Government or God? Sometimes we like to believe we can serve both, and in some areas we can, but you know what? It doesn't last long for reasons that we'll go into. If we're going to talk about government, we've got to start by talking about God's design for government, and that is revealed for us very, very clearly in the Old Testament. God actually designed government from scratch for the children of Israel. What he designed was a thing that he called a system of judges. What he had was five books of the law. They could read it in about three days. We know that because the children of Israel used to come together every year and every male above 13 would sit and they would read the entire law in three days. Anyone have any idea how much of Victoria's law you'd get through in three days? Wouldn't be much. They would come together, they would read it. He had the Ten Commandments, of course, but that was only one part of it. And he had a system of justice, a justice system. There was an arbitrator, a judge that you could go to if you had a dispute with a neighbor or if you felt that someone had broken the law of God. And that was it. I want to draw your attention to the fact that there was no mechanism to make more laws. There was no parliament, there was no king, there was no legislature. 
God said, here are all the laws that you need, and by the way, they're all the laws that you will ever need. That was God's design for government. But the children of Israel, of course, in their wisdom, they thought they knew better. A couple of hundred years pass, they have some good judges, they have some bad ones. And in, Sam, in the time of Samuel, the prophet and the, uh, the judge, he passed on the, the responsibility of being judged to his children. And they were not walking in God's ways. They were taking bribes, etc. So the children of Israel came to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. And they said to him, you are old. Talk about being blunt. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. What was the yardstick for what they wanted? Now, okay, I've got some slides mixed up there. Okay. Uh, now, what I want you to notice is they didn't actually say, clearly we've sinned, we have an evil judge, we should get back to God's design and serve him and worship him and God will give us a better government. They said, no, 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 God, your design's not working. We've got a better idea. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected. He took it personally against his sons, against him. No, no, no. God's saying, no, they've rejected me, God, as their king. Sorry, I was meant to be on that slide that whole time. But when they said, God, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said, listen to the people, listen to what the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected. They've rejected me as their king. And God goes on to say, verse 8, As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt unto this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so are they doing to you. What is God talking about when he says, as they did? He's talking about the building of idols with their own hands. He's talking about the golden calf. He's talking about the idolatry that the children of Israel committed over and over again. And he's saying, when they reject my design for government and say, no, God, that's not good enough. Give me a king instead. God is saying, that is idolatry. They may as well have built a golden calf. Rejecting God's design for government is idolatry. Now, historically, the children of Israel made idols with their own hands. Now they wanted to make a government with their own hands, not with God's design. When we look to the government... To do God's job, we are committing idolatry. Now, God actually gives them what they want. Sometimes that's judgment, you know. Sometimes when God gives us what we want, we go, yes, we got what we wanted. It's actually God's way of saying, oh, really? Okay, have it. See how you like it. Now listen to them, verse 9, but warn them solemnly and let them know what a king who will reign over them will do. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow the ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and to be cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your manservants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. 
That's only a tenth. He said a tenth, a tenth, a tenth. He equates that with slavery. Interesting. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, from the idol that you made with your own hands, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Why? Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Who did God say was supposed to fight our battles? When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Two points here. Rejecting God's design for government is idolatry. We've covered that already. Point two, look at the terms and conditions that God gave. He said, oh, you want a king? I'll give you a king, but here's the terms and conditions. Here's what the king's going to do. Take this, take that, make you do this, make you do that. A lot of what we accept from government today was actually part of God's warning against idolatry. It's actually a lot of the things that God said, yeah, okay, I'll give you what you asked for, but you've got to understand there's terms and conditions here. And that's what we experience today. It is a consequence of our idolatry. I want to summarize, and this is always dangerous, so this, this slide is not the word of God, this is the word of Chris, trying to summarize what we've just read, so test it with your spirit. The government made with your hands will take from you the things that I made for you with my hands. That's what I believe is God. God is saying in that passage. Now, does our government think it's God? Is that a fair assessment today? I think so. I'll use one example that I think makes it a pretty open and shut case. The new Victorian Change Suppression Practices Legislative Ban. It was passed in 2021 by the Andrews government. It made praying for someone in a way that was not government approved a criminal matter. If someone comes to you and says... Friend, pastor, father, whatever your relationship with them may be. And they say, listen, I think maybe I was born in the wrong body. I think maybe I actually ought to be the opposite gender or some other thing in between. If you pray with them or encourage them to wait to perhaps see if over time and through the grace of God they can come to terms with the body that they were born in, you are a criminal. So says the Victorian government. It was legislated in 2021. Now it's yet to be tested in court. Good luck if it's you. You have my sympathy, RIP. It turns basic Christian doctrine, a doctrine that says God made you and he made you exactly the way he intended, it turns that doctrine into a crime. This is not a slippery slope prediction of what's going to happen in the future. This is not some hyperbole. This is law. It's on the books right now. It just hasn't been tested in court yet. You can now be a Christian in Victoria just like you can be a Christian in China. You can be a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian. You can show up to a building called a church. You just have to publicly adhere to the doctrines that have been approved by the Chinese government. I mean, the Victorian government. Sorry, slip of the tongue. <laughs> Preaching the Bible as it is written is now a crime. Here. If I did it right now, I would end up on criminal charges. Here. Are you getting this? Praying with someone who asks you to pray with them is now a crime. The government is claiming to have jurisdiction and authority over your relationship with God and your theology. The government is claiming the status of God right here, right now. But it doesn't stop with just that one example. Let's just broaden our view a little bit. 
You need permission from our government, paperwork, something from our government if you want to work. You've got to have a tax file number, an ABN. There are 24,000 plus occupational licenses in force in Victoria. I didn't know there were 24,000 occupations in Victoria, but apparently we need that many licenses. Marriage, who defines it now? You have to comply with all the government paperwork, all that sort of stuff. Building, you never really own your own land. You want to build on it, you better go beg the government for, for permission. Medicine, the doctor-patient relationship isn't sacred, hasn't been for a long time. The government meddles in that in every way you can imagine. Education, the government decides what gets taught and who gets funded, all that stuff. During the COVID era, we discovered that we needed the government's permission to leave our house, to visit relatives, even dying relatives. We needed the government's permission to attend church, people. There are over 40,000 laws in Australia. And what's even scarier is that there's going to be more. Because our work here is done, said the government, never. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If all you have is legislation and regulation, every time you see a problem, what's your answer going to be? We'll pass a new law. We'll add some more regulation, create a new alphabet agency that's going to regulate all of that. Why? Why is this happening? Because the government is actually trying to fix the consequences of the fall. The government is trying to intervene and meddle in our lives to the point that they can say, hey, everybody, we're perfect now. We've fixed all the problems. And for as long as there are problems, they're going to keep meddling. And we know there's going to continue to be problems. Why? Because we're a fallen people. They're literally trying to do what only God can do. That's why they're operating the way they are. In the end, the government ends up playing God. And in the end, instead of the government taking over our sin nature and perfecting us, it's our sin nature that takes control of the government. And that's where we are right now. Why aren't the Ten Commandments shown in Parliament House or in courtrooms anymore? Because having thou shalt not lie in either context would create a hostile working environment. The government today believes that nothing is outside of its power, that there is no higher power, that it is our source of truth. I'm not allowed to say things that the government doesn't agree with. The government now, and I want you to understand this distinction, believes that it decides what is right and what is wrong, as distinct from rights laws that align with what is right and wrong. The government actually believes that it, through fiat, through words on a page, can change what is right and what is wrong. And now, with legislation like the, the bill I talked about a second ago, the government is actively forcing us to choose who we will serve. And so we have to talk about it, and that's what this morning is about. I want to go through some New Testament scriptures that sadly have often been misused. We're going to address that in a second, but let's read them for what they say right now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore... Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now that seems pretty clear cut. You've got to do what the government says, right? So does that mean when the government says you can't pray for people in certain ways that we've got to obey the government? Haven't we created a bit of a like a catch-22, a dichotomy here? Let's read Romans 13, another one that gets preached from a lot. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, that's written by a bloke who got murdered by his government. 
Interesting, isn't it? What's he talking about here? He's the, 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 so many of the apostles murdered by their governments, crucified, martyred for daring to preach the word of God when their government said don't. Notice they kept preaching even when their government said don't. So there's something about these verses that we're not quite getting here because I can tell you right now, Peter and Paul do not interpret their own teachings the way that they're often taught today. Paul, for example, actively fled the authorities in Damascus in a basket. Right? He heard the authorities are after him. They want to talk to him. Possibly they want to kill him. Instead of going, well, that's what the authorities have decided. I better go down there, but I better hand myself in. He gets in a basket, gets led over the wall in the middle of the night, and he runs away. That doesn't sound like submission to every ordinance of man, to me, at least not the way it's taught in, in the Western English-speaking church. Peter happily left prison after the doors were opened. Now, they were opened miraculously, no doubt about that. But instead of saying, you know what, God put me in here. Sorry, you know what, the authorities put me in here. I'd better wait for them to come and give me permission to walk out. He didn't walk out and go and find the nearest cop shop to hand himself in. He walked out free and continued doing the very thing that they'd thrown him into prison for, which was preaching the word of God. Both would be considered in breach of their own teachings by the shallow understanding of how those verses get taught too often today. I'll give you a few examples, a few more examples. The wise men lied to Herod. Lying is a sin. They did it and God didn't strike them down. If anything, they're, they're in scripture as an example to us. How can that possibly be? David ate the showbread. The punishment for that is death. God said, I'm cool with it. The circumstances meant that he needed to do it. When Daniel's government claimed the status of God and told him how he could pray, sound familiar? He refused to bow even at the risk of death. Esther, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the what? She actively planned in advance. This is premeditated, breaking the law. And if I perish, I perish. Notice she was willing to face the consequences. That's important. We'll get to that later. Moses, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They disobeyed the authorities. The authorities that we learned from the New Testament were instituted by God. And yet again, this is held up as an example to us. What in the world is going on? How do we reconcile this? Well, actually, we just need to take a better look at what Peter and Paul actually said, because this might come as a surprise to you, but Jesus didn't preach from the King James Version of the Bible. In fact, the first Bible wasn't written in English at all. It was written in Hebrew for the Old Testament and in Greek for the New Testament. So we actually have to go back there to discover what was said. Now, that's probably a bit small for you to read. Let me tell you something. There is a Greek word for obey. It's kind of a hard obey. Obey no matter what. That word exists in Greek. Hupakuo is roughly how it would be pronounced. Roughly. I'm not a Greek scholar. It appears 21 times in the New Testament. It appears in the book of Romans, just not in chapter 13. It appears in 1 Peter, but it's in chapter 3 instead of chapter 2. The word exists, and the authors of Romans and Peter knew that word. They used that word. And they made a conscious decision not to use the word obey in these scriptures. It's us that got it wrong when we translated it. Now, the King James Version of the Bible, which I love dearly, I grew up reading it and I read it to this day, was the first English translation of the Bible. But we know that King James himself did a little bit of messing around. Did you know that there was no disciple named James? 
Did you know that? Didn't exist. I mean, the person existed, but his name was Joseph. We have the book of James. We have the disciple and the apostle James because King James wanted to be written into the Bible. If your parents named you James because they wanted to have a biblical name for you, I've got some bad news. Okay? Now, given that that happened, and I don't know this for a fact, but I wonder whether the reason why the King James Version translated from God's Word, which was written in Greek, into our translation of God's Word, where we have to be humble enough to admit that introduces the opportunity for error. We have to go back to actually God's Word. Did King James turn around and go, you know what? If we just emphasize a little bit more obedience to my authority, I'd really like that in my little version of the Bible. Right? And then once he'd led the way with that, did others follow suit? I don't know that for a fact, but what I know for a fact is that the way these verses are often preached is not consistent with what the Greek, God's word in Greek, actually says. That's what I know for a fact. And we can go further. They did not use the word obey. The word that they used, submit, is not a great translation either. It does have merit, though. Somewhere between be submissive and be orderly is what they're actually saying here. They are not using the Greek word for obey. What does this mean in plain English? It means don't be a rabble rouser. Don't be rebellious just because you don't like being under authority. That's not a good enough reason. And we also know from these scriptures that it's for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of doing good. So there is a purpose on this. They didn't say obey even if it means doing evil. They didn't say obey even if it causes suffering to others. That is not what is written in the scripture. We must consider the whole counsel of scripture in order to understand what's really going on here. And I direct you to Psalm 94. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. Now, this is the King James Version. We've just seen some of the problems with translation, so I'm going to go through a couple of different translations on this verse, these verses, Psalm 94, 20 and 21. The New Century Version. Crooked leaders cannot be your friends. Have you ever heard a sermon preached from that before? I'll bet you've heard Romans 13. I bet you heard 1 Peter 2. I bet no one's ever preached a sermon to you out of Psalm 94, 20 and 21 before. Crooked leaders cannot be your friends. They use the law to cause suffering. They join forces against people who do right and sentence to death the innocent. The ESV, can wicked rulers be allied with you? That's what's called a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Those who frame injustice by statute, notice that the law, the writing of all of those 40,000 laws, that's the means by which they do their injustice. That's the mechanism. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. Under the message, I love this, I don't normally love the message, but I love this particular verse. Can misrule have anything in common with you? Can troublemaker pretend to be on your side? They ganged up on good people and plotted behind the backs of the innocent. Now, how can Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and Psalm 94, 20 and 21 all be the word of God all at the same time? Because we know they are. And they are all true all of the time. So how can that be? The purpose of government is the key to unlocking what's going on in these scriptures. 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 both have a caveat for the purpose. 1 Peter 2 verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Why? 
for the Lord's sake. The purpose of submission is for the Lord's sake. Now, whether to the king is supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for, again, this is a purpose statement, for the punishment of the evildoer and the praise of those who do good. There is a purpose for which God instituted government. It goes on. For this is the will of God, that by doing what? Not doing obedience, not doing what you're told, by doing good. Because this verse is in the context of a, a government that is abiding by the purpose for which God created it. To punish evil, to do good. And therefore, by you obeying for the Lord's sake, that means that you're doing good. And by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. This is a conditional statement within the purpose for which God instituted government. Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Notice there are consequences. We saw that in Esther. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Again, there's the conditional statement. God gave government authority for the purpose of doing good and punishing evil. The purpose is crucial to our understanding of government, our relationship with government, and reconciling these seemingly competing scriptures. When the government rebels against its God-given purpose, that's where Psalm 94 comes in. When they are no longer punishing evildoers and, and rewarding those that do good. When they become the source of evil themselves, crooked leaders cannot be your friends. They use the law to cause suffering. They join forces against the people who do right and sentence the de to death the innocent. Right, so that's a nice little theoretical exercise. Does that apply to us today? Well, Psalm 94 talks about the shedding of innocent blood. Victoria celebrated, and I use that word deliberately, they were literally dancing on the steps of Parliament House, I remember it. Victoria celebrated the world's most permissive abortion on demand laws. We led the way in the shedding of innocent blood. Is the law being used to cause suffering? Well, I put it to you. Victoria had the world's longest and harshest uh, and most harshly enforced lockdowns. Joining forces against people who do right, well, Victoria Police, they did do what they were told. They did follow their orders. And as a result, they violently arrested pastors and prosecuted those of us who were trying to help the people who were suffering during the lockdowns. What the Bible tells us in the whole counsel of Scripture, is that we must continue to do good even when the law requires us to do evil. That we must stand for the oppressed even when the law is what's doing the oppressing. See, there's a purpose to civil disobedience. If the purpose of government, and we know it is because we just read the Scriptures, is to reward good and punish evil, and if the purpose of our obedience to that government is for the, for the Lord's sake then it follows that the purpose of any disobedience must be for the Lord's sake and for the purpose of doing good even when your government is doing evil. If there is a purpose for which God instituted government and a purpose for which God instructed our obedience, but we see in Scripture time and again examples of civil disobedience, then we must understand the purpose of that civil disobedience, the purpose for which Esther broke the law, the purpose for which the, the, the Egyptian midwives broke the law. There is a purpose. How can civil disobedience be for the Lord's sake? Let me give you a couple of more recent examples. We've gone through a bunch of biblical examples. But 
Misuse of Romans 13, the shallow preaching of Romans 13 according to its English translation rather than according to its Greek origin, which is the word of God. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 led to Christians supporting things like the divine right of kings. And that's why I mentioned King James earlier. He rather loved the divine right of kings. The idea that because Romans 13 says everybody's got to do what I say, that he could do whatever he wanted. Tens, hundreds, maybe even millions of... uh, uh, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people were murdered by kings during the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages who stood under that verse and stood on the idea of the divine right of kings preached out of Romans 13 in the English translation. Slavery. Well, it's the law and you have to follow the law. And I'm going to add this in. We know, historically speaking, they had this idea that, oh, but they're not really human. The slaves are not really human. You know, and if a slave runs away, well, the law says they have to be punished. You've got to take them back to the slave owner, and the slave owner can kill him if they want to, because they're not really human. It's fine. Preached and justified from the pulpit in churches under Romans 13. Apartheid, South Africa. Same deal. Pastors preaching from the pulpit. We have historical records of this. We know the sermons. We have them written down. We know what they said. Now, they were preaching based on Romans 13, but I want to add a little more context here. There were two key things that they used to justify it in addition to Romans 13. Fear of disease. Don't go to the colored areas. Who knows what you'll come back with? Don't shop in that shop. Who knows what they've got? And also this supposed genetic inferiority. You see, you rewind a couple of hundred years, they didn't understand DNA and genes, etc. So they just said they're not really human. By the time we get to the 1930s, 40s, 50s, they had some of these understandings. And there was a belief in genetic superiority of some people and inferiority of others. A complete affront to the word of God, by the way, which clearly teaches us that we are all created by God and we're all descended from Adam and Eve. That's what the Bible teaches me. But Romans 13 was used to preach division, segregation, separation, inferiority of some. Segregation in the US, same. Fear of disease was all, was, was, that thread was woven all the way through. And the supposed genetic inferiority. Going to get really uncomfortable now. Nazism. Fear of disease. Typhus was the epidemic at the time. And if you look, particularly in the early years of the rise of Hitler, the fear of disease was often cited by him as a reason why you shouldn't go to Jewish areas. You shouldn't shop in Jewish shops. And by the way, did you know that they're genetically inferior to the Aryans? Obviously, that's a lie. But that was preached. Pastors stood in churches with Nazi flags. I'm not making this up. With Nazi flags and preached obedience to Hitler from Romans 13. That is a historical fact. 98% of Germans were professing Christians during the rise of Hitler and during the war. Let's get even more uncomfortable. What that means is that there were people who went to church on a Sunday and sang the songs and listened to the sermon, and then on Monday they went to work and they stood on the guard towers at Auschwitz and watched all of what happened on the inside. And the following weekend they went back to church again. This has been a blind spot. This has been such a blind spot for the Christian church. And this is what we need to heal, to fix obedience to all of these historical atrocities and affronts to God's created order. I'm going to say it again. God created all of us. He created all of us equal. Every single person in this room and on this earth is descended from the same two human beings. There is no such thing as genetic or racial superiority or inferiority. That is a lie. And anyone that has ever supported it using Romans 13 needs to repent because you will not find it in the whole counsel of Scripture. 
But obedience to all of these affronts to God's created order were actively preached by churches and pastors who were abusing. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. So let's talk more about how can civil disobedience be for the Lord's sake. Rosa Parks spent nine years as a criminal before segregation ended. 1955. Now, there was actually a campaign. She wasn't the very first one to do it. About nine months earlier, another, another woman had stood up and said, no, well, not stood up, she literally sat down and said, no, I'm not moving to the back of the bus. You can't treat me as an inferior human being anymore. And that kicked off a campaign, and Rosa Parks joined that campaign, and for whatever reason, God history decided that she would become the flashpoint, the catalyst. But you know, it was nine years from when she was arrested and found to be a criminal before segregation was officially ended at law in 1964. 1955 to 1964. Nine years. What's better for the Lord's sake? German pastor Martin Niemöller. Now, he actually fought for Germany in World War I. He became a U-boat commander. He was, if you look at his writings, he was a nationalist. He actually has all the appearance of being perfect Nazi fodder come the rise of Hitler. But something in him recognized the evil when he saw it. He founded the Pastors Emergency League. He began to speak out against Hitler before the war had even started. He was speaking out against Hitler, by the way, when Germany hosted the greatest Olympic Games on Earth in 1936. He was speaking out against Hitler, by the way, when Time magazine put him on the front and said, this is the greatest man alive in 1938. He was speaking out against Hitler before it was cool. And he ended up in a concentration camp before the war had even started. Finally got liberated in 1945. Lived to an old age, died at the age of 84. No, sorry, died in 1984. What's better for the Lord's sake? That pastors stood at a pulpit with Nazi symbols and preached from Romans 13? Or that we have in our history the knowledge that there were pastors who stood up and said no. The word of God tells me that we're all created equal and I'm not buying into this evil. What's better for the Lord's sake? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Now if you thought you were uncomfortable already... Hold on to your hats. Has there been a recent fear campaign based on disease with segregation based on DNA? Now, I want to be clear. COVID is real. It is dangerous to some people, and it deserved a response. I'm not saying that history is repeating. I'm not comparing our time in Victoria over the last couple of years to Nazi Germany. I'm not making that comparison. What I'm saying is that it rhymes. Okay? And I'm saying that the human motivators that allowed those atrocities and caused so many pastors to make such terrible errors of judgment are still at work today. You see, you rewind a couple of hundred years, they didn't know about DNA, so they just said they're less human. In the last century, they used DNA and genes as their excuse for that segregation. Well, now we have the technology to actually augment DNA, to augment your genes. And all of a sudden, hey presto, that is becoming the source of the segregation. Government says that being only a God-breathed human being, having only the immune system that God gave you isn't enough anymore. If you want to have your human rights, your privileges to go and live a normal life, you have to have gotten the patch, like you're a piece of software. Right? You have to patch your immune, your antivirus program. Otherwise, you're not allowed out in public. This is an incredibly dangerous moment. If lockdowns and mandates didn't hurt you, fantastic. I'm, really, I'm genuinely happy for you. 
Okay, I don't wish ill on anyone, and if you skated through the last two and a half years largely unharmed, good for you. I mean that. But there are a lot of people who were hurt. I mean hurt. There are people who took their own lives, and there are people who are looking at the rest of their life thinking they will never, ever recover from what was taken from them. And blind obedience to crooked leaders who use the law to cause suffering, Psalms 94, is idolatry. It is unbiblical. We are not commanded to obey when the law itself is the source of the injustice and is the source of the suffering. How will history judge the church's COVID response? If silence is consent, if Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right, then the church has now agreed that the government can stop us from gathering, indoors or outdoors. The government can stop us singing in praise and worship. You remember that? Oh, yeah, you can get together with a couple of your friends, but don't sing any songs. Segregate the congregation on the basis of medical status and whether you've had your government-mandated update to your God-given immune system. Stop us from doing charitable work, including feeding and serving the homeless and struggling. Shut all of it down. They did it, and we allowed them to do it at a time when people needed us the most. They needed us the most. The government played God and we let them. Businesses were shut down. Five kilometer radius, remember that? Four reasons to leave home, one hour of exercise. Playgrounds were closed. The ring of steel, this new border appeared in Victoria, separating the urban from the, from the, the, sub, the um, rural areas. The curfew, that's a wartime measure. Parliament suspended, they didn't even do that in wartime. That's not even a wartime measure. All of the democratically elected people that we're supposed to be like, hey, we're going to support our government because we get to participate, all of them sidelined. Arrests of dissidents, vaccine passports, violent repression of protest, and now permanent pandemic powers that are going to be with us probably forever if history is a guide. Once legislation like that gets passed, no one wants to give it up. I want to reflect on the names of God that he gave himself in the Old Testament. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Who do we look to for provision now? Jehovah Rapha, God heals. Who runs everything to do with our health care? I'm not saying hospitals are bad. I'm not saying, I'm not saying vaccines are bad. I'm not saying any of it's bad. I'm saying having it all in the hands of a government that wants to play God is idolatry. That's what I'm saying. Government Nisi, government is my refuge. Who provides us with refuge now? Who promise us, promises us safety if we'll just obey? We'll keep you safe. Government our peace, government our way and shepherd. Who guides us now, provides us with all of our education, tells us what is best and what we should do? Government Sidkanu, the government of righteousness. You know, God of righteousness. God determines who is righteous and what righteousness is, but government is now claiming that status. Government Shama. Government is ever there. Hasn't it felt like that recently? Government is ever present. I put it to you that our government, our government is deliberately and specifically supplanting God. I suggest to you, whilst it may not be conscious on their part, that Satan certainly knows what he's trying to do. Are we Esau? Remember Esau? He was a firstborn. He had the birthright, the double portion. And in a moment of fear and weakness, he traded it in for a bowl of soup. Our God-given rights are now under government control. 
your ability to work and earn are now subject to the government. Your faith and your ability to minister even to those in need at their time of greatest need is now subject to the government. In return for what? What did we sell our birthright for? In a moment of fear and weakness, what changed? You know, once upon a time, Christians went to places with disease. We sought out people with infectious diseases to minister to meet their needs, the needs of the sick, the widows, the orphans, the poor, the oppressed, the suffering. And this time, we shut our doors and told people to apply for government welfare. The government will provide. Christians lament that the church no longer has its rightful central place in society. But let's get real. We did it to ourselves. We vacated that space and allowed the government to become God. We let government take the place of God and in the process take the place of the church. That's what happened. Okay, there's one very important voice that we haven't heard from yet that I want to finish on. What would Jesus say about all this? We've looked in the Old Testament, we've seen a whole bunch of examples of civil disobedience. We've looked in the New Testament, got a better understanding of Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, looked at some of the examples of some of the apostles. But if anybody ever asks you, what would Jesus do? Just remember that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. Not saying that's what he does by default, but it's in the book, right? It's in the range of options that he's going to reach for. What I love about this is Jesus goes into the temple and he sees all the money changing. We'll talk more about money changing in a second. He sees all of that. The Bible actually says he then made the whip. So he got leather and he cut it into strips and he got wood for a handle and he connected it and he's braiding the whip. And I can just imagine all 12 of the apostles are like, of the disciples are looking at each other like, what did you say? It wasn't me. I didn't say anything. Hey, Judas, are the books up to date? Have we paid our taxes? Yeah, we're all good, man. It's not me. Right? Turns out it was for the religious leaders of the day. He flipped tables and he flogged them and he chased them out of his father's house. That's in the range of possibilities. Now, it's actually only a few days after he did this that we come to Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Now, the Pharisees were continuously trying to catch Jesus out. And the Jewish people have this amazing way of debating theology. The, the purpose, the aim, is to ask a question that they cannot answer. And once you've asked a question and the other side cannot answer that question, you've won by default. That's their target. That's their aim. I could show you many examples of that in Scripture. I don't have time this morning. So we're just going to focus on the one that matters for our purposes. Pharisees sent unto him to Jesus certain of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. This is a trap from the start. And when they were come, they said unto him, I've erased a bunch of stuff here, but they, they talked flowery, they butted him up, talked about how great he was. You fear no man, blah, blah, blah. Master, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? It actually kind of sounds, they've done brilliantly, it sounds like an innocent question. It's a, it's a question about tax, right? And that's how it's been preached time and time again. I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with taxes. We'll see in just a second. At that time, there was a tax revolt happening. Judas the Galilean had been leading a violent revolt, a revolt against government that you won't find advocated in Scripture as opposed to peaceful civil disobedience for the purpose of doing good and glorifying God, which you will find in Scripture. We had Judas the Galilean in a violent tax revolt. It was so violent that two of his own sons had died in combat during this revolt. There were open pitched battles. Towns had been burnt down. 
in that context of division, of violence, where many Jewish people were violently on the side of the tax revolt, and of course the Romans, and also the Pharisees, etc., were rather violently on the side of Rome, because let's not forget the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the, the scribes, etc., they got privileged. They had a foot in each camp. They loved the Romans. They were making so much money. So here in that context, they come along and say, should we give this tax to Caesar or not? Oh, it's just an innocent question. Their intent was very, very clear. If Jesus had said, yes, you should pay tax, they would have denounced him to the tax revolters who would have taken care of the rest. If Jesus said, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, they would have denounced him to the Romans who would have taken care of the rest. It was a question that was designed to have no right answer. The fact that it was about tax is irrelevant, as we'll see in just a minute. But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he saw it from the start. He instantly understood what they were doing. Said unto them, why do you tempt me? Bring me a penny. Now, again, we have a translation problem here. In the Greek, it's the word denarium. It's not any old coin. It's not a Jewish coin. They had coins. They had all different currencies at that time coming into the temple. People would bring money into the temple for one of two reasons. To change it for doves or various other things so they could make their sacrifices to God or to change it for Roman denarians so they could pay their tribute tax. Those money changers whose tables he flipped, they were making money off the very tax that they were now asking Jesus about. They were making a profit every time someone changed their money into one of these denarian. So Jesus asked for a denarian specifically. Bring it that I may see it. And they brought it. I imagine they would have had it right there in their pocket. They traded in these things all the time. And Jesus says to them, whose is this image and superscription? Now, the superscription is the words around the edge. He's not just drawing attention to the image. He says, whose is the superscription? They answered him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said to them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Notice the reaction. Many people have preached, this is Jesus saying you have to pay taxes. Well, we know we have to pay taxes. That's covered elsewhere in Scripture. We don't need it re reiterated here. right? If he had said you have to pay your taxes, they, would have, they wouldn't have marveled and left. They would have denounced him to the Jewish crowd as siding with the Romans. If he'd said don't pay taxes, they would have denounced him the other way. So clearly he didn't answer in either direction here. This is a non-answer, but it's not the kind of non-answer that has them pressing the attack and repeating the question, saying, no, really, Rabbi, tell me what you think. Somehow in here, unconveyed in the English translation, he's flipped this on its head and they can't even continue the conversation. What happened here? Well, we understand what happened when we understand that coin that Jesus asked for. By name, bring me a denarian. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. He drew, Christ drew attention to both the face and the superscription. This is what the tribute coin looked like. We know this from archaeology. That is the face of Caesar Augustus Tiberius. He was the Caesar at the time. The inscription or the superscription says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. You see, the previous Caesar, Tiberius' dad, believed that he'd become a Roman god. And when he died, he was in the pantheon of Roman gods. And Tiberius played into that and said, yeah, you know what? My dad is a god. So who's he saying he is? The son of God. On this coin that Jesus said, bring me this specific coin. Have a look at the face. Read the inscription. We have inscription. He directed them to the superscription. And in that superscription is Caesar claiming to be the son of God. And in that context, when Jesus says to them, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, 
What he's saying is if you accept Tiberius Caesar's claim to be the son of God, well, you'd better give him what he wants, right? But render unto God that which is God's because he was standing there as the real son of God. He was challenging them on their idolatry and saying, it's about whose claim to God they were going to accept. What he was saying was like an updated, modernized version of what Joshua said in Joshua 24. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, these are the gods that God spoke about to Samuel when he said them asking for a king is the same idolatry as what their ancestors did. We're talking about it here. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what are we going to do? We will serve the Lord. That's what Jesus turned the Pharisees and the Herodians' question about a coin and tax into. They couldn't even repeat the question because to even repeat the question in the con- with the context that Jesus had now overlaid onto it would have been to entertain the idea that maybe Tiberius' claim to being the son of God might have been correct. Just re-asking the question was off the table. So you know what they did? They marveled and they left. And now this scripture makes perfect sense. Their reaction makes perfect sense once we understand what was on that coin. Jesus was asking them to choose who they would serve. And I'm sorry to tell you, but we've got to do the same thing. Because it's no longer possible to obey both God and government. The Victorian government has made sure of that. They started this fight. and They made sure that you can no longer be a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-praying Christian in this state unless you're happy being a criminal. Now, I want to summarize a few things here so I'm not misunderstood. Our default position as Christians must be to obey the government as far as is possible. When it becomes necessary to disobey, and remember why we're doing it, for the Lord's sake and for the sake of doing good, that has to be the context and the motive. We must remain orderly, Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. Even when you're forced to disobey, it doesn't give you an excuse to be a rabble rouser. It doesn't give you an excuse to become Judas the Galilean, the tax revolter. Burning down villages, having pitched battles where people are getting killed. That's not what I'm saying here. Our disobedience must be for the Lord's sake. And if it's not, then we shouldn't do it. Our disobedience must be for the Lord's sake. And for the sake of doing good. And we must be willing to face the consequences, just as Esther was. Right? You can't engage in civil disobedience for the Lord's sake and then get all upset when you end up in prison. Right? For those that know my story, you know that's a pretty close to home, close to the bone statement there. You have to be willing to accept the consequences. Here's the scary version of what I think might be happening right now in Victorian politics. The scary version is what if God is giving us what we want? What if we said to God, you know what, God, we don't need you anymore. Like the children of Israel. Hey, God, that was a great idea with that whole judges thing, but we've got a better idea. And God gave them what they wanted. And they've been suffering the consequences ever since. What if God is actually giving us what we want? What if we said we don't need you? And he's saying, oh, yeah, you think? Okay. 
You know, we know from the Old Testament that God was willing to send his own chosen people into captivity for up to 400 years as a method of discipline, as a method of bringing them back to repentance and demonstrating his glory and the fact that he is God. I believe repentance is now the only option. And we know from Scripture it starts in the house of God. We are beyond fixing this with politics. I care deeply about the election in a couple of weeks' time, but you know what? In the grand scheme of things, it's actually meaningless. It is. Politics got us into this mess. It cannot get us out of it. Only repentance can do that. Only the people of God coming back to God. And instead of saying, hey, God, give us a king, saying, hey, God, help us to be a people worthy of the design that you created in the first place. It starts with us making a choice. Who will we serve when it's no longer possible to serve both? My final note is this. May God's grace be with all of us. Because these are tricky issues. And your conscience and my conscience, we may both be seeking God earnestly with all of our heart and come to different conscientious conclusions. I may feel that I must disobey in an area where you feel you must obey. And I can't be sure that you're wrong. You can't be sure that I'm wrong. What we can be sure of is that God is sovereign and that as we seek him over time, we will find him and we will understand what it is that we must do. And in the meantime, let's have grace towards each other. A lot of mistakes have been made throughout history and a lot of mistakes have been made in the last couple of years. Let's have grace towards each other and the decisions that were made. Let's have grace towards those who might have been on the other side of whatever issue you might feel very strongly about. Let's have grace towards those in authority. Pray for Daniel Andrews. Maybe not for his re-election, if I could just put that request in there. But pray for him. Pray for him. That his soul would be saved. I hope to see Daniel Andrews in heaven. I do. I don't wish hell on anyone, even the ones that brought hell to earth. I want to see him in heaven. Let's pray for him and those in authority. But above all, may God strengthen us to obey God rather than man.